I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey there, everybody. It's Luke. Before we get started on the podcast today, I wanted to say a huge thank you to you for being a listener and for being part of the Livewire community. Did you know that it's our fall member drive? And, you know, fall is is a time for Thanksgiving and being grateful. I am grateful that I've gotten to be a part of Livewire and grateful that Livewire has been here for 14 years, bringing you conversation, comedy, music, all stuff that is made possible by listeners like you, people who have stepped up and donated to support Livewire. As you probably know, if you're a regular listener, we have a scrappy, and I mean extremely scrappy team in Portland, folks that work hard every single day to bring you the highest quality weekly public radio product. We try to bring you fascinating people. We try to bring you ideas and inspiration and insight and the occasional good belly laugh. Um, We feel like these days more than ever, Livewire is an important part of your world, an important part of making the world bigger for you and hopefully a little bit brighter. Uh, Every episode of Livewire that you hear is made possible by members who support Livewire by donating every month. And today I'm asking you to join us and become a sustaining member of Livewire during this fall member drive. Any amount that works for you really helps. It adds up. $5 here, $10 there from a lot of people really makes a huge difference in terms of us being able to keep making Livewire week in and week out. Here is what you can do. You can go to livewireradio.org and sign up. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe you've heard me talking about this during other member drives and you just haven't gotten around to it. This is a great time to do it. Or if you were a member and you've lapsed, this is a great time to sign up once again. And if you are someone new signing up or if you sign up to renew your membership during this drive, you will get an awesome set of custom designed Livewire notebooks from our partner Scout Books. These notebooks look really cool. They're made in Portland, Oregon, of course, with 100% recycled paper, vegetable-based inks, and renewable energy. They are incredible. And sorry I said vegetable in a weird way. Again, go to livewireradio.org and sign up as a member today. I promise it's super fast. It's super easy. It will make all the difference in the world to us. All right. Enjoy this week's edition of Livewire. Livewire. 
Welcome to LiveWire, everybody. How's it going? I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a good week. We have an exceptional show in store for you. Uh, we've got guests like Jose Antonio Vargas, who has a Pulitzer Prize. Also, Courtney Hameister, who used to be the host of this actual radio show. Uh, she's back. Plus comedy from Marcella Arguello and music from Planes on Paper. All of the folks on the show this week have faced their fears in one way or another. And me and announcer Elena Passarello started things off by talking about some of the things that we are afraid of that we have a hard time facing. So let's pick things up on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I have the personality type that when something is intimidating me, when I'm afraid of dealing with something, I just avoid it. When my wife and I uh, got married, she noticed that my policy for dealing with bills was waiting for the color of the envelope to change. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. Like, they'll mail you the first few bills will be in a white envelope. And then when they want to escalate things to tier two, the envelope will turn yellow. My policy is, if it's yellow, let it mellow. <laughs> they will eventually send you a red envelope. <laughs> Which is like hours before the power goes out or something. <laughs> and my wife was like looking at this stack of multicolor envelopes going, what is this? And I was like, it's my system for not <laughs> facing my fears. Like, uh, What were you afraid of? I, just, I, I don't know that it was going to be more money than I wanted to pay. It just was, I would see the envelope. I would think, that doesn't seem pleasant okay. to interact <laughs> with that reality right now. When I could go check Twitter... Like, I, I don't know, a couple months ago, I intercepted a letter that was from the IRS addressed to me and my wife, and it said that I had, from like two years ago, all of this unclaimed income. Oh, my God. Like, income that I had not told the, <clears throat> the IRS. I get emotional even thinking about it. <laughs> and I did not want to deal with it nor did I know how to deal with it. And it was a substantial amount of money. Oh my God. And I just had this envelope and I took it into my office and I put it under something. <laughs> that was how I dealt with it. And for like two or three days, I was just walking around the house with this thing just crushing me with stress. Uh. And my wife would go like, you know, I don't know if any of you do this, but you'll have a really intense thought going on in your mind. You're really worried, and your partner will say, what are you thinking about? And for some reason, you go, nothing. <laughs> it's like I have the weight of the world on me, but I'm like, oh, nothing. <laughs> so finally, I had to tell her about it because I didn't know what else to do. And she looked at it, and she was like, oh, no, we, we claimed all of that. That's a clerical error. And then she just opened a spreadsheet on her laptop that had all of it and all of the documentation. And oh, my she God. Just, she called them, and they were like, yeah, that's our bad. Oh. And my plan, like, if I were not married to her, I wouldn't be hosting this show right now. I would be in Canada. <laughs> that was my plan. Burn my fingertips off and start over. I just wish all of my fears could be addressed by somebody showing yeah. me on a spreadsheet oh. that everything's fine. Like, what a keeper you ended up I with, sir. Really, I really outkicked my oh. coverage with this one. But, well done. like, honestly... It was so much better when we just addressed it. Yeah. And that is something I'm still, I'm still learning about. I would have really put it off indefinitely until it got worse and worse and worse. And 
So I, I'm hoping that by the end of this hour, I'll have learned at least something about facing my fears. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. Yeah, I, I feel that way about um, snakes, uh, and, which is great, you know, because I might get a letter from the IRS, but yeah. until recently... I would probably not the snake a snake would not just like show up at my house. Right. But now but you're afraid of snakes? I don't I don't I don't do well with snakes. <laughs> you know when you're not supposed to be afraid of something but your body won't accept the logic, right? Yeah. Like I like the, all, most snakes in Oregon are not going to do anything to you, right? Not okay. like where I grew up. So you could pick up a snake. You grew up in the South yeah, where there are like legit poisonous snakes. Like cotton snakes. mouths and things right. like that. Right? But you know intellectually that the chances are pretty slim that there's a dangerous snake out here right. in the West, but you're still afraid of My them viscerally, won't. physically. Yeah, but now, so now I have this kitten who uh, is a, just a sociopath, wakes up every morning, rejects his breakfast, goes outside, and brings in a pretty sizable garden snake. And... Uh, Sometimes I'll forget that that's part of his practice. Sometimes this cat I'll... is trying to help you grow as a person. Yeah. By, by <laughs> exposure therapy, by no. bringing a snake inside every morning. We did name him Sigmund because, uh, ah. no, I'm just kidding. We didn't. No, his name is not Sigmund. His name is Snake Killer. So <laughs> I could very easily, I put, I put the, a mixing bowl, a clear mixing bowl on top of the snake, and then you can slide like a piece of poster board underneath and then lift the snake up and take it outside. It's always alive, the snake. But uh, usually I get my partner, David, to do this. But uh, the other day, there was a snake. He wasn't around to take it out. I put the mixing bowl over it. He was gone, like, at work or something. It was a late-in-the-day snake. <laughs> and I just left it there. I watched Jeopardy. <laughs> I did laundry. It's a clear mixing bowl. I'm just, like, hanging out because I couldn't bring my body to pick this snake up. Uh, and, uh, did now, you eventually like bond with the snake? Like, did it get Stockholm syndrome? Yes, yes, it got Snakeholm syndrome. Oh, <laughs> Snakeholm syndrome. That's that's regrettable. Yeah. I'm sorry, everybody. That that joke <laughs> happened on our show. I apologize. Uh, we actually have a, a guest about to come out on the show who knows all about facing your fears. In 2008, he won a Pulitzer Prize for journalism at the Washington Post. Then, in 2011, he revealed publicly. Uh, that he is an undocumented immigrant and has been the whole time. He could be deported at any moment, including, and I'm not saying this to be dramatic right now, like as we record the show, this is a real extant threat for him. Um, his new book is titled Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. We're so happy to have him here with us. Please welcome Jose Antonio Vargas to Livewire. <laughs> Jose, welcome to Livewire. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for and having me. It's actually uh, one of my first questions for you. I'm, I'm, we're not being cheeky. Uh, you're the first guest in my memory of hosting the show where we have actually, we had to hire extra security um, oh. just to make sure everything was taken care of. I know you've gotten some threats at times. I know that there is a possibility that ICE could show up at an event you were doing. Do you have a plan in mind? Like what, what if that were to happen? Oh, yeah. Like I'm like prepared. What, what's the, I mean, what's the plan? So I have a lawyer. I memorized my lawyer's phone number. Because, you know, now we have iPhones, so we don't remember numbers anymore. <laughs> so I actually, after the election, I realized that this could happen for real. And so I had to, like, write down my lawyer's, like, phone number in my arm. <laughs> That's when I knew that we had entered a different era. Right. Um, but at the same time, I have to 
keep a sense of humor about this or else it's just way too tragic. Well, let's, let's start kind of at the beginning for you. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was 12. My mom sent me here from the Philippines. Then, you know, it was 1993, and I actually thought my original thought was I, was, I landed in the wrong country. Huh. Because in the Philippines, where I'm from, I thought America was like Baywatch and Oprah. Huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought I was in the wrong country, but I guess there's this thing in, the, you know, in America called Latinos and Asian people. I didn't know I was Asian. I was, you know, I was Filipino, but I didn't know what Asian was. Then four years later, when I was 16, when I tried to get a driver's license, I, that's when I found out that the green card that my grandparents had given me was fake. That's how I found out. And yeah, my instant reaction was, I'm not Mexican. Wow. Because I had so internalized that whenever anybody said anything about immigration or fake or illegal, right, the news, the newspaper, the radio, the television, everybody thought it was Mexican and I'm Filipino. But, you know, my name is Jose because of Spanish colonialism. Huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's how I found out. And then my grandfather, the plan. Were you upset with, on any level, were you upset with your grandparents oh or your family? For not telling upset. you this? <laughs> because I guess their plan was they get me here. Um, I marry a woman who's a, who's a U.S. citizen. And meantime, until that happens, I work at the flea market as a janitor. That was the plan. But then the fact that my grandfather had lied to do this, because I guess he couldn't bring me here legally, because you can't, if you're a grandparent, you can't petition a grandchild that's not close in for a relationship. Oh, you're my, kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's why they couldn't do it legally. My mom, my grandfather lied on a form and said that my mother was single, even though she was married. So all these lies. And now they wanted me to lie. And so I said, actually, I'm gay. <laughs> so that was that's like, a really good way to regain control of the conversation exactly <laughs> but you don't say that to like a Frank Sinatra loving my way or the highway Filipino Catholic immigrant guy wow but it was my own way of saying yo like I have to be in control of my life like I'm not just gonna buy into this lie so that's right when I wrote this book I structured it lying passing and hiding because, you know, outside of the whole immigration reform conversation or Dream Act of DACA, the reality is the emotional toll of what it means to live in this country without documents, which I've been doing for the past 25 years, is what we do is we lie, we try to pass. How did you, I mean, you're an ambitious guy, though. You, you were working in the media, you were interning at newspapers, you end up at the Washington Post, you go to college. How do you get into college when you are not officially documented in this country? Well, actually, that's why... Even in writing this book, what I wanted to communicate is that people like me can't lie and pass and hide on our own, right? Like there are many, many, many people who have hidden and lied for me and tried to help me out so I can pass. So like if it wasn't, for example, for my high school principal, I would not have gotten a scholarship to go to college because this was before there was a Dream Act when there was no language around any of this. There was no Google. There were, you, I mean, we couldn't find each other. And I actually owe a great deal of gratitude to, to Oregon, specifically to Portland, because if it wasn't for getting a driver's license in Portland, in Oregon, I would not have had a career at the Washington Post. Uh, we need to take a very quick break. We're talking to Jose Antonio Vargas. His book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. This is Livewire Radio, and we will be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. 
There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection, and I've been there, by the way. I've met them, I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Foley sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. It's Elena Passarella right over there, and we are at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to Jose Antonio Vargas. Yeah, we'll get a round of applause for that. That works. His book is Dear America, a Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Um, uh, you, you came to the U.S. when you were 12. You found out later on that you didn't have all of the paperwork to be here, but you, of course, wanted to pursue a life, as anyone would, and so you, you get into college. You end up working at the Washington Post. You are part of a team that wins a Pulitzer Prize, and then in 2011, you wrote a piece declaring yourself and letting the world know that you were not documented. Why on earth did you decide to do that? Seems like a terrible idea. According to 20 lawyers, it was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, but, you know, the license was expiring. The Portland the driver's Portland, license? The Portland, Oregon driver's license was valid that for was eight your one, years. That was your one kind of legitimizing piece I of government ID. I dropped it once at a bar and a club, and I freaked the hell out. Because, <laughs> you know, like, how do you... People forget, like, I'm undocumented because I don't have the right documents. Like, how do you get around in America, in post-9-11 America, without any sort of ID. It was literally the only piece of ID I had, thanks to Oregon, and it was expiring on February 3rd, 2011, which was precisely my 30th birthday. And so it was like this telltale heart kind of clock beating inside of me, going like, okay, what are we going to do? And at that point, I was writing for The New Yorker. I just finished my first documentary, you know, whatever. I was living in New York. So the choices was I either self-deport Thanks to Mitt Romney for that phrase. And actually, my original plan was to leave. Because, you know, I haven't seen my mom since I was 12. Um, so I haven't, you know, since she sent me here, I haven't seen her. Wow. Um, she can't even come on a tourist visa because she doesn't own property. She's not a college graduate. That tells you a lot about class and race. Or I, I stay. And again, I'm totally fine if I had to, like, be a janitor or babysit your kids or mow your lawn and serve you drinks. Like, you know, what people expect us to do. I would have been fine with doing that. But... I ended up being a writer, and really, really, the only reason I became a journalist was so I could write my way into the newspaper, because it was my way of physically feeling like I was here. So I think the whole time, I was just carrying a lot of guilt. Like, how can I be in the business of truth-telling if I'm lying about who I am? Were you, were right? you carrying guilt, or were you carrying um, anxiety? Oh, both. I think it was, and the way to compartmentalize that is you just, you know, thankfully, I don't know how it happened, I... I could have gotten into drugs, I could have been an alcoholic, but instead I'm just like, I'm just gonna work, 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 work. And you know, you know how people say that people like me should earn 
our citizenship. You mean people who, who are undocumented? Yeah. Like, you know, whenever they talk about immigration reform, they're like, hey, they should earn their citizenship. So I actually convinced myself that I had to do that, which meant that I had to get this really, you know, good resume. And then I realized, like, earn it. What have you done to earn your citizenship? No, I'm, I'm absolutely nothing. Right? I mean, let's just kind of turn the tables around. Like, if we were actually, you know, apparently there's like 150,000 undocumented people in the state of Oregon. If you were actually to compare what citizenship is, I would argue that undocumented people exhibit a greater amount of citizenship than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. So. But that's, you know, I don't want to have to go around everybody and say, like, hey, have you proven your worth? What have you done? I don't want to do that. That's rude. That's totally rude. So I don't want to do that. I just want us to be able to figure out how we can share this space together and, like, what it means that our lives, you know, we're accountable to each other. Like, what does that mean? We're talking to Jose Antonio Vargas. Um, uh, his book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Um, from the time when this was basically a secret that you were sort of keeping, or at least yeah. not many people knew, to when you publicly declared that you were undocumented, uh, how has your life changed? Are you less anxious now? Are you more anxious? I mean, certainly the current administration is probably not helping for you. But like, what was the, what's the difference in your life before and after you went public with this information? Well, the biggest thing is the moment I came out as undocumented, I knew that I was only one story. One story, right? And because I'm, I look like this, People are going to project onto me this good immigrant model minority. Can we stop doing that, by the way? Can we stop projecting onto Asian people this model minority thing? Like, let's just stop. So I knew that was going to happen. So I started an organization called defineamerican.com. Please check it out. I now employ 18 people, which is amazing. But just to check, this is how crazy our immigration system is. So I can employ people and provide good health benefits and insurance that I can't get myself. What kind of twisted is that? What is that? So I started this organization, and then after Trump got elected president, I was living in downtown LA, and the building manager texted me and said, hey, Jose, um, I don't know what we would do if ICE showed up, if we could protect you. So when he said that, it kind of crystallized for me what my own situation was, that I can't pretend that my life has been and always been on limbo. So I packed everything up. It's all in storage. And I've been living, I haven't had a place since. So I actually wrote the book while I was in like hotel rooms and Airbnbs and friends' houses because I just kind of had to face what it means to be in this kind of purgatory. What does the future look like for you? I mean, uh, do you think you'll be able to live out your days in America? Or do you think it's, it's a sort of a likelihood that you will end up getting deported at some point? I don't know. I really don't know. But I have to be prepared for everything. The book just came out. I did the Today Show. I've been just going through the, the rounds. And what's fascinating is so many of my colleagues in journalism, the number one thing they ask me after they read the book is, I just don't understand why you can't fix this thing. But before we talk about any sort of policy or politics, can we get on the same page about what we're actually talking about? Right. Right? And right. what do you think that is, in well, your that opinion? that is, for example, if I just counted all the undocumented Asian, undocumented black, undocumented white people... What do we want to do with them? And the role now is, what do each community, each county, each state really wants to do with us? So there's only 12 states that allow us to drive. And I'm sorry to say that Oregon is no longer one of them, right? So I, I really don't know anymore 
what can happen in D.C. given how partisan and toxic it is. What I do know is every community has to decide who's welcome and how do they define American, right? So our work is into that. As a gay man, I remember the time when Ellen was on the cover of Time, when Will and Grace was the number one show on television, right? Before we actually pass same-sex marriage as a law, the culture in which we talk about gay people had to change. It is now, thankfully, culturally unacceptable to be anti-gay. In this country, you say something anti-immigrant, not only is it acceptable, you get elected to be president of the United States. What is that about, right? What's one thing, somebody's listening to this interview right now, out wherever they are in America, who might want to try to change the way that we talk about this and the way we think about it? What's one thing somebody can do? It has to start with you. Meaning, how willing are you to be uncomfortable talking to your own relatives about this? Are you going to call your coworker out who says something bad about illegals, right? Like, at Define American, we strongly believe in the gift of uncomfortable conversations. That's mostly what this show is. Great. <laughs> but for me, if you're not uncomfortable talking about this with someone else, then you're actually not doing it right. Right. So get comfortable with the discomfort of having real conversations about that need to happen. About what this is, Right. And that's why I think this book is going to really help, because it's a clear, deliberate, 200-page play-by-play of what it actually means to be this kind of abstract term. I think in, yeah. in the minds of a lot of people that live in this country, it's this kind of blank placeholder word, like immigration reform or illegal. But now here's a story with a beginning and a middle, and I hope uh, the kind of end that we all want for you, that... I think can, can make that change with a relative or a community or a community member or a school if they could take a look at the book. Oh, thank you. That's yeah. the hope. But, you know, look, <laughs> I love this country. If I didn't, I would have already left. I love all the teachers that ever welcomed me here. I love, I love that I'm from Mountain View, California. I love that, you know, this is a country that always tries to figure out how to better itself. Um, and I think we have to remind people that it is actually a choice for us to stay right? We choose to stay. The question is, what's your choice? What are you going to do? Jose Antonio Vargas, everyone. The book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. All right, Jose. We, we couldn't let you leave quite yet. Uh, we're talking this week on the show about facing our fears. And uh, as you mentioned, and as we were doing some research on you, we learned that a fear that you have is going to therapy. Uh, you apparently told NPR that you've never been to therapy before because you've always been a little bit scared of it because you watched Frasier as a kid. <laughs> and so we were hoping that we could sort of help tackle your fear of therapy and whatever residual Frasier-related PTSD you have by giving you a little quiz about both topics. It's a segment that we like to call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff. So here's this, how this is going to work, Jose. Uh, we're going to give you a quote. And you have to tell us if it's advice from the fictional Dr. Fraser Crane <laughs> or a real quote from an eminent therapist. You ready? Okay, okay, yeah, sure. All right. <clears throat> it may be an unwise man who doesn't learn from his own mistakes, 
But it's an absolute idiot that doesn't learn from other people's. Please, no help from the audience. So wait, is this something he would have said in an episode? Uh, these are either things that Dr. Fraser Crane said during an episode of Fraser, or it's something that was said by uh, an eminent Emin- psychotherapist. But not Niles Crane. <laughs> For the purposes of this quiz, we're only uh, studying Focusing the work of Dr. Fraser Crane, okay, not Niles. I think Frazier might have said that. You are absolutely right. That is Dr. (laughs) Frazier Crane. From season three, episode 16, the episode, Look Before You Leap. Yep, yep, yep. All right, how about this one? Every form of addiction is bad, no matter whether the narcotic be alcohol or morphine or idealism. Oh, that's like a therapist saying that. (laughs) Who is not a therapist that is not... That's not Frazier Crane. You're absolutely right. That is Carl Jung. The Swiss psychiatrist, the founder of analytical uh, psychology. All right, here's another one. Um, I have always detested any departure from reality, an attitude which I relate to my mother's poor mental health. Is that? Frazier never really talked about his mom. And you really know the show. You're right. That's Jean Piaget, the Swiss psychologist known for work on child development and apparently unresolved mother issues. You're three for three, Jose. For somebody who's never been to therapy, you really know your stuff. Uh, I have a degree from Harvard. Uh, whenever I'm wrong, the world makes a little less sense. Oh, that's Fraser. That is absolutely Dr. Fraser Crane. <laughs> that is from season two, episode 12, Roz in the Doghouse. All right, how about dog saliva is nature's miracle solvent. But Frazier hated Eddie. Mm. Oh, a therapist said that. That's Frazier Crane. Would Freud say that? Think I don't about know. It. I don't know. I don't know. But he hated right. Eddie. You did really well, though. You, uh, got, you got like four out of five. Does that get me citizenship? What, what do I get for that? Yeah, exactly. A green card? What do I get? That's fair. That's fair. Yes. Jose Antonio Vargas, everyone. Hey, it's Luke. Don't go anywhere. Coming up on this episode, we have writer Courtney Hameister, who walked away from her dream job, which was hosting this very radio show. When everyone thinks you're really lucky, it takes you a really long time to realize how miserable you are. That's coming up this hour on Livewire from PRI. Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines, who asks... What comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines? Snowdrifts and husky puppies? Well, how about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Yeah, don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world with 1,200 daily flights and over 115 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Find out where else they fly at alaskaair.com. All right. Our next guest is, by her own description, too lazy to shoot hoops and too tall to model. So she turned to the next logical thing, stand-up comedy. You've seen her on Comedy Central's At Midnight, 
Uh, she's one of Time Out's LA comedians to watch. Please welcome Marcella Arguello to Livewire. Make some noise for me. I look amazing. What up, Portland? Uh, my name is Marcella. I'm very tall. We're not talking about it. Um, so just accept it. Move on with your lives. Um, but I am mixed. I don't know if you guys can tell by looking at me, but I'm mixed with colonialism and oppression. Anybody else? <laughs> I see a few familiar faces. Not too many. Not too many, but a few. Uh, no, I'm Latina. I'm a proud Latina. Any Latinos in the house tonight? Oh, that sucks. I guess Trump got here pretty quick. Uh, it's not enough, is what I'm saying. Uh, but I am proud Latina. My, my parents actually achieved Latino American dream a few years ago when they hired a white gardener. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I didn't expect him to laugh. Um, he's like, that's not a thing, that's a landscaper. Um, but I'm a proud Latina. I'm over 30 and I don't have kids, which is a big no-no in the Latino community. It's a no-no. That's Spanish for no-no, ma'am. Um, and uh, my family badgers me about it. My, my grandma, last time she was visiting, she was asking me about it. My grandma at the time was 94. You would think when she asked me if I was going to have kids, I'd say something sweet like, hopefully soon, abuelita. <laughs> but I'm me. So when she asked me when I was going to have kids, I said, you know, when Jesus was over 30, he didn't have any kids. <laughs> That's what I said to a 94-year-old Catholic, third-world, Spanish-only grandmother. When Jesus was over 30, he didn't have any kids, to which she replied, without missing a beat, you know, when Jesus was 33, he was dead. <laughs> so I decided to navigate the conversation in a different direction. I was like, you know what? I don't even have a boyfriend. I ain't got no man. No tengo novio, grandma. <laughs> to which she replied, Mary didn't need a man. But it's, and it's not that I don't want kids. It's not that I don't want kids. I love kids. I have eight nieces and nephews. I love helping with them. Uh, it's that I don't want to be a mother. How many mothers are here? Mothers, make some noise. Wow, you're so upbeat for being, having the worst, like, most thankless job. I, you can't, can't, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I, I also just, like, I don't fit under, like, the characteristics of person. I just don't. I'm like... You know, I have a drinking problem. Uh, you know, I'm verbally abusive, obviously. I'm self-centered. What I'm saying is I would make a great father. Um, <laughs> wow. But I, uh, I'm an alpha female. Uh, or as my mother calls it, single. Um, I don't have a problem. I don't care. I don't care that I'm single. It doesn't bother me. What bothers me is my friends who post inspirational quotes about it on Instagram. 
Uh, my friend posted the other day, life without love is like a ship without sails. Girl, a ship without sails is a yacht. <laughs> okay. Let me get a little, can I get a little political? Um, I think the transgender bathroom debate is dumb. I think if we're gonna, yeah, I think if we're gonna separate bathrooms, it should be between people who clean up after themselves. <laughs> and people who don't! Cheers, everybody. Have a good night. You can check out more of Marcella's stuff at MarcellaComedy.com. Look for her forthcoming album, The Woke Bully. <laughs> All right, this is Livewire Radio. This week we're talking about facing your fears. And where do I start introducing our next guest? Well, she's familiar to Livewire fans because she used to be the host of this show. She was also its head writer. Like a lot of us, she's faced her share of fears in her life. Unlike a lot of us, she set on a mission to battle those fears methodically and write about the experiences hilariously. The result is her amazing book, Okay, Fine, Whatever, The Year I Went From Being Afraid of Everything to Only Being Afraid of Most Things. Please welcome Courtney Hameister back to the Livewire stage. Well, well, well. <laughs> Courtney, welcome back to Livewire. Thank you. This How's isn't it? weird at all. Right? <laughs> how does it feel to be on that side of the hosting experience? I.e., how does it feel to be a guest on this show? It is completely bizarre. It really... But I have to say, I watched people for nine years... You know, well, for 12 years, right? S sit over in the guest area of the audience and wonder what that experience must be like. And it, it's been great. I feel comfortable asking you this because uh, you, write, you write about it. Can you take me back <laughs> to that fateful weekend uh -huh. when you were the host of this show? Yes. And I was scheduled to be a guest mm -hmm. on the show. Yeah. And you decided, not today, Satan. <laughs> I'm done hosting this show. <laughs> uh, right. Well, and I, I didn't think I was done hosting the show. I just knew that I was having a massive two-day panic attack and that I couldn't do it. And, I mean, I had I'd been hosting for uh, nine years at that point, and, and I had never canceled a show. Um, my wonderfully supportive brother, I called him, and he just kept saying, you have got to cancel. You have to cancel. And I said, oh, there's all these people. They're counting on me, and, and there's the whole staff and the audience. And my brother is, um, he's a very straightforward person, and he's a very kind person, but at the time, it was just, he looked at me, he had this look on his face that said, it is so adorable that you think you're that important. <laughs> like, and, well, no, he just looked at me, and you know, when people, when someone tips their head and looks at you, and that's what he did. He it's tipped like a bless my, your heart Exactly. Moment. Bless your sweet little heart. The world is not going to stop turning 
call your producer. And what was, what was extraordinary about that moment, as you well know, was that you were going to be on the show the next day. And the whole reason we were having you on was that you were this guy who was a podcast host, and we thought you could fill in for me if I ever got sick. And I honestly think that part of what happened was my brain going, this is your chance. This is your chance to get out of this situation. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I, because I'd had this, I'd had this anxiety for a, for a number of years. I'd had panic attacks on stage, and I had what I called my dread ball for every show, and it was an untenable situation. And I called Robin Tenenbaum, who was our producer at the time, and I said, "Yes, amazing, Robin." And I called her with a problem and a solution, and I said, "I can't host it." Let's ask Luke to do it. But what I didn't know was that you were on a massive bender that night. <laughs> Technically, the night before the show. Yeah, exactly. Which meant was, the morning was. of the show, I was massively hungover. Yes, exactly. Like one of those things from like a like an old like a Bob Hope movie, <laughs> where the person wakes up and they see three of everything. Like one of those mornings, and what I was looking at was my cell phone. And there was just a lot of missed calls from Portland. Yeah, yeah, you were Bob Hope drunk. Yes. Um, you know, and I've, I've been on book tour and I've been telling this story. And what I always say to people was, you hosted that night. And I'd already written the whole script. Right. Like, everything was done. And you hosted that night. And what I, said to, what I say to people is, something happened that was wonderful and horrible. And that is that the show was great. And it was fine, and Luke was fantastic. And so I realized that this thing that I had helped to make could totally survive without me. And that's great news, and it's terrible news, you know? Yeah. It's the whole reason that I didn't leave for so long, Yeah. you know? So I always thought that the show was the thing that made me, maybe the only thing that made me interesting, right? Because I didn't have a great self-image. And then this other thing is, when everyone thinks you're really lucky, it takes you a really long time to realize how miserable you are. Um, we're talking to Courtney Hameister, writer extraordinaire, radio host of this show for many, many years. Um, you describe your personality as high in neuroticism and low in extroversion, yes. which seems uh, like a bad fit for you. Uh, you know, you've done stuff on stage. You have an amazing singing voice. You've hosted this show. You're like... How do you square those two parts of your personality? Um, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I struggle with neuroticism, obviously, but I also struggle with, you know, I struggled with a negative self-image for a really long time. And so what I realized was the audience were this thing that caused me so much anxiety, but at the same time, hearing their applause and their laughter was proof that I was an okay person, you know? And, and I think that when I lost the hosting gig, and I realized one of the things that I'd lost was just all of these people who mistakenly would sort of give me credit for them having a great time for three hours on a Saturday night, you know? And somehow it was like, that means that I'm worthy of something. And you cannot get your self-worth from 400 drunk people. That's a terrible idea. But I'm going to do my damnedest to see if I can make that work. <laughs> right. So you, you, you started writing this column and you started this really active process of, of sort of taking on projects that were scary to you or pushed your comfort level or your boundaries um, and you wrote about it and those like adventures are kind of amazing. When did you feel most out of your element in all of these different things that you took on? Cuddling, polyamory, <laughs> drugs, you name it. I 
would say I was most uncomfortable going to the professional cuddler. My imagining that was by far the, the most difficult thing for me. And to can do. you explain the professional cuddler? I mean, it's sort of right there in the title. Yes. <laughs> but for folks that aren't familiar, what, 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 how, what does this woman do exactly? So her name is Samantha Hess, and she has a business called Cuddle Up To Me, and you pay a dollar a minute to cuddle her. Um, she had a business out of her house for a long time, but she was so successful that she opened up a storefront here in Portland. And she has 56 different positions that you can choose from. But she really sort of is an empath and kind of decides what you need. And what did, like, why was that one of the things that was really scary for you? Um, for me, I'm afraid to talk to strangers. I don't like talking to strangers. I never approach people in public. Um, and so for me, the idea of then cuddling with a stranger is far, far worse. But another reason it gave me a lot of trepidation was that I saw the, the, the ocean of snark that came at her when she got a lot of media attention. And I saw that people said things like, that's pathetic. And, you know, uh, just terrible things about the people who needed her. And the thing was, I have been single the majority of my adult life. And I'd had really like a decade where people weren't touching me. And people who get touched on a regular basis, they don't understand what it feels like to not get touched and what it does to your self-image. You start to believe that you don't deserve to be touched or loved. And... That feeling is so vulnerable. And, and so what gave me trepidation about it was that I related to the people who needed her. So there was so much bound up in going to see her, and you know, so, many, so much fear. And she immediately put me as much at ease as I could have been when my entire body was a two by four, you know? <laughs> like I, so I turned into maybe a piece of uncooked spaghetti instead huh. of, you know? Yeah. But we cuddled for a while. Then she had me do these affirmations, and which I hate affirmations. Yeah. <laughs> I hate them so much. But, but the one thing she made me say, you know, I'm enough, I'm amazing, which I know, I know, it's woo-woo. And I was fine with it. I was like, this is fine. I am enough right now. Uh, I haven't paid my taxes for 2012, but that's not a big deal. Um, is that part <laughs> of the job of being the host of this show, is tax problems? <laughs> that I was like oh been there um, and you know and I'm amazing and I'm like but I am amazing I did this and I was scared but then she got to I'm beautiful and I started crying and I realized oh that's the point of affirmations is to not necessarily point you to the things that you want to believe but point out the things that you know you don't believe about yourself because you can't say them we got to take a short break. We're talking to Courtney Hameister. Her book is Okay, Fine, Whatever. The year I went from being afraid of everything to only being afraid of most things. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We'll be right back. Hey, we want to say a special thanks this episode to Jeff and Ruthann DeFrang of Savage, Minnesota, and Diane Keller of Burien, Washington. Jeff Ruthann and Diane are part of the Livewire member community. They are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, and we are so thankful for that support. We would not be able to do this show without people like them. So thank you so much, Jeff, Ruthann, and Diane. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. 
We are talking about facing your fears this week, and we have Courtney Hameister here, writer, longtime host of this very radio program, also the head writer of this show. Um, she's got a book out. It's called Okay, Fine, Whatever, The Year I Went From Being Afraid of Everything to Only Being Afraid of Most Things. Um, do you think that you, in, in taking on all these challenges and pushing your, your boundaries and, and confronting your fears, do you think that you've actually been able to sort of fundamentally change yourself as a person or how you move through the world? I think that it was one of the ideas that I had as I was doing this, right? I think that if you have anxiety, what anxiety does is it just creates these giant ruts in your neural pathways that say everything is going to suck. And when I discovered, when I was told that I had generalized anxiety disorder, I thought that I had just been a pessimist my whole life. And I thought, oh, that's not my nature. That's my pathology. What if I could change that? What if I could actually reteach my brain that everything was going to be okay? By maybe, by doing these, it was essentially like exposure therapy, but to the entire world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this book is so incredible. It is so honest. Like, I was crying reading parts of it, and I actually feel emotional talking about it with you. Yeah. Because it's just like so impressive what you did. Like, you really, you just don't, you don't hold back at all, and you're not trying to come off as like some cool person. You're just being like, this is what's going on for me. And it's so relatable and human. I just love Thanks. it. Thanks. Thank you. It's I appreciate really, that a really, lot. It's really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> How did I make this about me? Right. That was weird. <laughs> that was... It's your show. Yeah. But just overall, I just think the book is really a marvel. And I, Thank I think you. you should, I hope you're so proud of it because it's really awesome. Courtney Hameister, everybody. Thank you so much. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week. And our musical guests this hour hail from Yakima, Washington. They've just released their debut full-length album. It's called Edge Markings. Please welcome Planes on Paper to Live Wire. Thank you for having us. What song are we going to hear? Uh, this is a song we called Hermit Song. It's uh, about a guy who, um, he stole his, this is in the 80s, he stole his brother's car and, and he drove into the woods in Maine. Uh, and then he stayed there for 28 years <laughs> without any human contact at all. And he never built a fire for 28 years because he was scared people would find him if he built fires. Um, and, and, you know, he stole goodies from summer camps and stuff like that when they were when they were closed, and eventually, uh, he, he went to jail for that, and uh, he gave an interview to somebody uh, at The New Yorker, maybe? Pretty interesting, turns out. Spend 28 years alone, uh, you reflect a little, I guess. I couldn't spend 28 seconds alone. That's amazing. All right, well, this is Planes on Paper on Livewire.
watching the sun go slowly. Life beyond the shades, humming blue, back in a gray. And then it's all gone. Planes on paper, right here on Livewire. Thanks, you guys. That's going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Jose Antonio Vargas, Courtney Hameister, Marcella Arguello, and Planes on Paper. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our production director. Our editor is Melanie Savchenko. 
Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Plus, our announcer is Elena Passarello. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio, as always. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Roger and Jennifer Brown of Portland, Oregon, for their support. If you'd like more information on our show or how you can get our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. R.I. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.